Hello and welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout for Wednesday, December 16th, 2020. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. This week, we're going to be talking about Neptune's new dark storm. Chang'e 5 successfully returned samples from the moon using the sun as a telescope. Joining me this week on my screen, uh, I got Alex Tichy. Hey, Alex, how's it going? Doing great, Fraser. How are you? Good. Um, it's early morning for you. We got uh, a good chunk of the planet covered now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Rainy Taipei. It's been raining here for like three weeks. Yeah. It's actually like kind of kind yeah. of chilly, but so what time different is it right now where you bad. are. Uh, nine a.m. A little after nine. Yeah, yeah. Totally different from rainy West Coast Canada. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, we got uh, Carolyn Collins Peterson. Hey, Carolyn. Hi there. Hi there. Hi from the cold, chilly, snowy Rocky Mountains. Of featured, featured behind you. Yes, that's a sunrise view, but yeah. That's great. Uh, and we got uh, Morgan Redberg. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Fraser. It is nice and sunny here in Texas, or it was today. Yeah, awesome. Um, all right, well, we're going to get on with the special guest this week. But before we do, I want to make a huge special shout out to our good friends at the Weekly Spaced Hangout Crew. And I know I say this every week. But I just want you to understand that this is a very special community of people who are super space nerds, um, but they are more than that. They are the executive producers of the Weekly Space Hangout. Unlike most shows, the Weekly Space Hangout is really just a slave to the fans. We show up, we interview who we're told to interview, we talk about the stories we're told to talk about, and we, uh, and we do our jobs. And so if you want to have the kind of just cosmic power that comes with being executive producer of the weekly space hangout all you have to do is two things one go to the weekly space hangout crew website crew, website wshcrew.space and two just have the bravery to use your executive producer ship to reach out to any guest you want and have them show up on the show I know you can do it. So go to wshcrew.space. All right. Speaking of special guests that I had no involvement in inviting to the show, we've got John Powell from JP Aerospace. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I guess I'm representing the West Coast in California here tonight. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm the Northwest Coast. You're on the Southwest Coast. Okay. Yeah. But uh, this is great. I'm super excited to have you on the show. It's funny. I, I, uh, seeing that you're going to be coming, coming on the show, uh, you know, I've been following your Twitter feed for uh, years now and really excited about, about what you're working on. So for people who don't know what JP Aerospace is, tell us who you are and what you do. Well, we are actually a volunteer space program. We have a small paid staff and then a large volunteer staff, about 70. And we kind of have two big things. The one big thing that I think we're going to talk about tonight is our whole airship to orbit program. That's this crazy idea of finding a new way to get to space. And the second whole thing, which started out as a side thing about 15 years ago, but it's become this giant unwieldy monster <laughs> yeah is our PONSAT program and that's our student payload program that we fly student payloads from all over the world for free and we take them up to 100,000 feet they'll do their thing and then get them back and that's become actually about half of what we do and then the airship to orbit program the other half of what we do all right so let's I I appreciate you outlining for us today so let's start with the first part which is um, a new way to get to space that doesn't use rockets. Well, I guess it's rockets in the end. Well, there is rockets involved. Yeah. yeah. But it's just the, uh, the notion is to think of it as extreme air launch. You know, instead of Virgin Galactic going from 50,000 feet um, and things like the Pegasus going from 50,000 feet, we want to start from 300,000 feet. And instead of starting at 500 miles an hour, like a 747, Especially when we want to start from Mach 10 at three to 400,000 feet and go from there. The thinking is in 1958, there was a project called Project Shot Put, and it was a predecessor to the Echo Balloons, the balloon satellites. And what they're doing is taking sounding rockets, like this is an underfunded program, so sounding rockets from the 40s, and deploying balloons at Mach 10 at 400,000 feet. <laughs> Most of them didn't work. They right. deployed about billions of little pieces. But 
after a while, a lot of them did. And there was a follow-on program that continued only till very recently, the Robin program. And there's actually been about a dozen of these programs. And they're all about the same, getting balloons to cruise at Mach 10. So and what is the that benefit of that? Like, why well, would you want to do such a thing? Well, kind of two reasons. One is it was a lot of upper atmospheric research. They measure the drag, they measure the consistency. And after a while, they started putting instruments on the balloon. So it wasn't just a balloon. It's a balloon with solar panels, with radio transmitters, with sensors on them. And then that also dovetailed into uh, nuclear weapon decoys. That ended up being the big funder of a lot of that work. And the science ended up, even though it started with the science program, it ended up being a rider kind of program. Because when uh, ICBM comes in, it actually deploys quite a few decoys. And these are hypersonic reentry vehicles. Otherwise, hmm. they're balloons. <laughs> wow. That look like missiles. And so that's probably why a lot of that testing has gone on. But our thought is, so you got this balloon at Mach 10 at 400,000 feet. And it's just a ball. In 1959. Yeah. Well, what if you made it aerodynamic shaped? What if you put a little thruster on it? Well, maybe you go a little faster. Maybe you could climb a little higher. What could you do with that model? Mm -hmm. What could you do with that model if you add 60 years more technology on there? Could you go to Mach 14? Could you go to 500,000 feet? Could you go Mach 16 at 800,000 feet? That's the question we're going to answer. Can you take it all the way to orbit? Right. And I'm here to tell you that I have no idea. Okay. okay. So <laughs> but the airship orbit program is trying to answer that question. Okay, so so you actually brought uh, you've got a model of what this thing looked like. So f so for people who want to sort of get a sense of, of what this thing might look like, can you can you show that 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 oh, uh, that model? I have a yeah, bunch of models. Weirdly, the smallest model I have is of the biggest vehicle. <laughs> right, right. Endgame vehicle. Right. And that's this guy. Okay, okay. And they end up being a V shaped because we discovered it's a high aspect ratio V shaped vehicle. Yeah. Ends up being stable, statically stable in all three aerodynamic regimes, in subsonic, mm -hmm. in supersonic, and in hypersonic. Right. Which is why it's this shape. Okay, and so you take this vehicle, you, what do you do? You, you launch it like a balloon, you let it float up? Well, that's the even crazier part about this. We discovered that this has to be so big, you end up as a gossamer structure that goes at hypersonic speeds like the Mylar balloons in the 50s. The problem is a balloon like that, or an airship like that, doesn't survive in the lower atmosphere. You get a five mile an hour crosswind, and suddenly you have 800,000 tons on the side of the vehicle, and then you have confetti. Right, right, right. And we've actually done that a few times too. So the idea is that you have three different vehicles. You have a vehicle, an airship that goes from the ground, a vehicle like this one. Mm -hmm. This is scale model of our Ascender 9. It's just under 100 feet long, and it flew about a year ago. And so this goes from the ground to 140,000 feet. Can't get any higher. It's not a supersonic vehicle. It's a big blunt load lifter. Right. And it goes to 140,000 feet. And at 140,000 feet, we have actually put our spaceport. And we call it the Dark Sky Station, and we've flown about a dozen of those. Our largest has been about 70 feet long, and it's supported by a series of balloons. It actually looks like this, but if you had five arms instead of the two. Right, right. And we discovered that makes a nice stable platform. And, and so, also, for the, so for the people who are watching this or listening to this as a podcast, John is sort of showing a uh, – I'm trying to think what this looks like. It looks like a, like a Zodiac boat with the two sides, but imagining then if it's a five side, it's more like a starfish in the... It looks like a starfish. Right, like a... Like a they look like a, just a giant starfish. Tubular starfish, sky. yeah, okay. Yeah. And they're odd when you watch them take off, because usually when you're by big things that zoom into the sky, they make a lot of noise, a lot of excitement. This, you're right next to it, it's this giant thing, and it just screams away from you and is completely silent. <laughs> yeah. We had some NASA official outs for launch. It really rather freaks them out, and we kind of enjoy that. <laughs> right. So you've got the 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 station 
goes up to 140,000 feet and is then what? A stable platform that you can then launch it's a stable rockets platform from? That it just stays there. And it's the connection that holds it all together. So you got my hand is the station. Right. Yeah, the vehicles come and park, and that's where you bring cargo to and people. So it ends up being a three stage system because then you have the larger, more fragile vehicle that's actually built at the edge of space at 140,000 feet. But more correctly, it's assembled on the ground, hauled up, and inflated. Right, right. So building is maybe over dramatic. That's the vehicle that goes from 140,000 feet. It's buoyant to 180, then slowly starts to move forward. We're not even breaking Mach until we get to a little over 200,000 feet. And what is your propulsion system at this point? Right now, we're working on, that's the other big part of this project, is a plasma engine. Um, We've had just over 200 test firings. We probably have literally eight, nine hundred to go and maybe five or six more years in that program. Right. The idea is that an electric, pure electric propulsion, like an ion propulsion, has the efficiency we need, but no thrust, not enough thrust for this. Now, a chemical engine doesn't have enough efficiency. And if you fired it off, you just fire right through the airship and out one side the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a hybrid engine where in an ion engine, most of the power of the ion engine is used to ionize the gas to accelerate out the back. Right. We're using what's called a mixed gas ion engine, or we call it just a dirty ion engine, where we use a chemical engine. And the fire from the chemical engine in the combustion chamber is the plasma then accelerating out the back. Got it. Okay. So our ion engines that we're running right now can be thought of either the world's worst ion engines. Terrible. Because instead of 60,000 ISP, we're only getting 1,200. Right, right. And that's a completely sucky ion engine. Not efficient. But you think of a chemical engine. And you think, wow, chemical engine that has 1,200 ISP. But the thing weighs a ton. Yeah. (laughs) That can't even lift itself. It's a stupid engine. It's like, why? It's not really an advanced engine that, that we've thought of that no one else has because it only has one use. It's the steamship engine. Right. You plant it on something that's carrying it and it goes putt, putt, putt for right. days. But it, but, it, but, but it can continue to gain altitude beyond that initial 180,000 uh, feet yes. that, it's, that it's buoyant. And then it slowly is going to accelerate. Right. Right. And then by the time we get to the higher velocities, you know, the Mach 10 plus, we're at the altitude of the shot put balloon, where a little Mylar balloon can go Mach 10. And we actually have some structure in doing something, hopefully, a little better than that. Yeah. And so and then, then, then is this the vehicle that serves as a platform for the rocket to do the final kick stage to get to orbit? This is the vehicle, but there's not a separate rocket. The, the half plasma, half ion engines that we're running, if you turn off the electrical proportion, you're running a pure rocket engine. And that does the final orbital insertion burn. Because you no longer have any air resistance at this point, so you don't have to worry about tearing your 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 right. vehicle apart. Right, right. Right. You don't want to you don't actually want to go mock until it's like our platforms right now, our balloon platforms, a lot of foam, carbon fiber right. tubes, paper thin things. And we fly them at Mach one on the way down. Yeah. That sounds impressive. This light fragile thing flying at Mach 1, but at 100,000 feet, you've kind of pulled the teeth out of that. Right, right. So it sounds good, but it doesn't really mean a whole lot. So then, I mean, you know, what's the point? Because, like, what is what is the savings? Because, I'm, you know, I mean, obviously, I can imagine that, you know, you get, like, with a traditional rocket engine, you have to go through, with a traditional rocket, you have to go through the thick part of the atmosphere, you have to get yourself to that tremendous orbital velocity, 20,000 kilometers per hour, you're going really quickly. Um, so how does this method save you in terms of propulsion of a propellant and, and, and costs? In efficiency wise, it's not very efficient way of doing it. The, a more instantaneous release of propellant is the most efficient way to burn that propellant. Yes, of course. So it's not really that. It's truly changing the nature of space travel. Say you're three quarters of the way up on a traditional rocket or just go back a little bit, look at the space shuttle. Except for in a very narrow window, if you lose one of the engines in the space shuttle, it's an LOC, you know, a loss of crew event, mm-hmm. unless it happens at a very narrow window near the end. Mm-hmm. You know, here, say you're Mach 15, 
you're only three quarters of the way through the process and you have a big engine failure. Well, you go back and you take a look at it while you're drifting back down again. You have a meeting about it. Right. You try to get the thing working again. And if it doesn't, well, you float back down to the station. Right. Or if you get it working again, you just continue on. Um, that you really don't have in rocketry. You know, right now when the when the vehicle clears the tower, they make that announcement because that's kind of a big milestone. There's a lot of safety things that you know you've gotten through at that point. And normally at a launch like that, people are crying. It's all very exciting, especially if you have loved ones on the vehicle. Now imagine you're at the airport. If every time a 747 took off, they had a big announcement, it made it, and everyone cheered and people were crying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you really want to get on that 747? Yeah, yeah. Time? I mean, that's what you're thinking when you saw the uh, the Starship landing. You're like, I'll wait for SN9 before I before yeah. I take a before I take a trip. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, um, so I just want to. I, I, we need to shift gears then and just talk a bit about your about your other project that you that you brought up at the beginning, talking about uh, about how you're working with students. Oh, this is actually the most important thing we did. Um, a friend of ours, Bob Twiggs over at Stanford, was about 15 years ago started the CubeSat program. And the, we both had the same problem. We actually talked about it back then. Is getting, we flew student payloads, but we only did two or three a year. Getting someone else's stuff into your stuff is hard. <laughs> and he standardized it with the CubeSat. And of course, the rest is history. And we thought that was a great idea. You know totally brilliant on Bob Twiggs' part, but we wanted to take it a step further because we thought it was too big. And we've made all our students put all their experiments inside ping pong ball. <laughs> and if you look at our website, some of them that you open it up and there's two data loggers, 18 sensors, um, a GPS and a camera all inside their ping pong ball. And some of them are marshmallows. You put a marshmallow mini marshmallow, it puffs up in vacuum and freeze dries. And it's a great science fair project for a first grader. That's cool. And we flew, we put the announcement out there, we flew 15 of them. So like 15 student payloads in one, and you could do that. Because instead of integrating them all, you opened up a box, you poured it in the box and you taped the lid closed. You're done. Well, that was 18,300 ping pong balls ago from 18 different countries and over 80,000 students have been through the program. Um, it's a completely free program. We don't charge anything for it. We let people fly. We don't judge the experiments. Um, weirdly, if it's got a GPS, a camera and 14 sensors, it's a junior high student. If it's marshmallows and plant seeds, it's some university professor. Right, of course, yeah. Not that I'm judging. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, some little kids, we flew a bunch of Lego minifigure astronauts for a bunch of kids out of Australia. That was really great because it just inspires them. Yeah. And then we did uh, cancer research for University of St. Petersburg in Belgium because they discovered that on one flight, they can get a year's worth of UV that better simulated a year of UV really than the artificial lighting yeah. to accelerate. Yeah. I mean, when you and think the, about all of those those suborbital rockets that fly all the time, I'm sure many of the experiments that they're testing on those would work quite well on a, if they can ping pong size their, their experiment, oh, yeah. then, then there's actually a pretty good um, platform to be able to use it on. Because a lot of how we pay for all this is, you know, carrying things up for companies, you know, doing their experiments. Yeah. And we send literally tens of thousands of kids to the exact same place. I say there's some serious research. There's just some fun to be inspired research. And recently, because it's gotten so overwhelming, <laughs> it costs us maybe $25,000 to do a PongSat mission. And we do three or four of them a year. Yep. And our backlog is now up to 10,000 <laughs> that we need to fly off. Wow. So we started a nonprofit. So we're going to, we're separating out PongSat to its own universe um, as a nonprofit aid. So hopefully it can right. go beyond us. So if people want to, uh, want to fly a ping pong experiment, um, and, and I, I highly recommend you follow JP aerospace on Twitter because you do a great job of, of showcasing all of the missions, all of the photographs from those incredible altitudes, any flat earthers should just be completely, um, uh, you know, convinced 
of the the curvature of planet I get Earth. So much flat Earth hate mail. I know. I'm sure you do. Yeah, I keep it. I'm going to make it a book. Yeah, you, you must spend so much time faking uh, pictures of the curvature of the of the Earth. But uh, but yeah, so if people want to be able to sign up for this program. Where should they go? Oh, go to jpierrospace.com or to actually we're now the setting we've set up this nonprofit to pongsat.org. Perfect. All right. And they just send an email and that's all it takes. You say, I want to do, I have a class of 30. I want to do them. I have, I'm just one person. I want to do it. That's it. Fantastic. All right. Well, John, you're going to stick around uh, and listen oh, to the rest here. of the space news. So uh, I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk to you again during the episode. Let's move. But thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, so if anyone's got some ideas for some Pong sats, now you know where to go. I've, I've got some ideas. I think this is great. Um, Thanks for thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. All right, all right. Let's move on to the news portion of the of the show. Um, Morgan Renberg, let's talk. What were we going to talk about? You changed your topic. No, let's talk about Changa Five uh, because I think this is just amazing. Um, so we have new samples back from the moon's surface uh, for the first time in almost fifty years, forty five years, uh, and. I think this has been basically a, a technical tour de force mm-hmm. from from the start. It's just extraordinary uh, process. It and the, the speed of it all, I think, has been what has struck me. So in late uh, November, China launched the Chang'e Five mission to the moon. On December first, the lander reached the lunar surface, and here we are on what is today, December sixteenth. Mm-hmm. And we have samples back from from the moon. So basically three weeks mm-hmm. to go from spacecraft sitting in your um, rocket uh, at your spaceport to samples back from from the moon. Uh, and the complexity of this mission was just extraordinary. I mean, if you look at the way the Soviets did their sample returns in the 1970s, they were really simple. Uh, and, and this was anything but simple. So, you know, you had the, the spacecraft launch from Earth into a lunar orbit. Uh, then you had it separate the lander from the main uh, spacecraft. The lander descended to the surface, scooped up uh, material, packaged that material up, passed that material yeah. to the Also did a core stage. sample, not just scooped yeah. off the surface, did a drill the core sample. Exactly, yeah. And they, they packaged all that up. They got it to the ascent stage, blasted that back into lunar orbit, docked it with the mothership, and then sent part of the mothership back to Earth um, with the with the samples that then entered. It was basically like a mini Apollo mission yeah, that, done by exactly robots it. in three weeks. Yeah, it's Apollo 11. It's, it, is, it is just... Piece for piece, Apollo 11. Like the only thing that's different is there weren't people inside it. But you can imagine it being scaled up so that people could be in a, could be inside this. No problem. And the the benefit of all that complexity was the amount of material that they were able to bring back. They haven't opened it up yet, just landed today. So they don't know quite how much they got. But they're hoping that it's kilograms. I think two to four kilograms is kind of the working capacity that they that they imagined and compare that to the Soviet missions, which were bringing back like tens of grams <laughs> of materials with their uh, mission back in, in the 1970s. And so by mastering this automated process, uh, China has, you know, orders of magnitude, more ability to return samples from, uh, from the lunar surface now. And, and I think this, if nothing else has this cements, China as basically a first-rate space power when it comes to doing robotic exploration. This is as complicated yeah. as any mission that uh, a nation has attempted uh, in the last several decades. And you know they're only the third country to bring uh, material back from from the lunar surface. And so I think hats off to everybody who worked on this project. China has already committed to sharing these samples with international research teams. Uh, which is amazing because they're sampling a region of the moon that hasn't been that well studied. It's similar to the area that the Apollo 12 uh, mission landed at. It's part of the Ocean of Storms. Uh, But the Ocean of Storms is like the largest region of the moon. And so the part that China is landing on looks quite different, Mm -hmm. at least from orbit, than the part that uh, 
that Pete Conrad and Alan Bean landed on in 1969. And so we're, we're poised here to get a whole new tranche of material from the moon that's going to be totally different than the kinds that the Apollo astronauts picked up and the kinds that the Soviet uh, landers returned in the 1970s. Yeah, and, and as I said, it perfectly prepares the way for them being able to to send humans when you think about the the work that's going on with with their Taikonaut missions they've done building space station they have they've pretty much mastered sending humans to space keeping them alive in space for long periods of time and then on the other hand they have demonstrated their ability to perform all of the steps of going to and retrieving something from the surface of the moon and so you put those two together and you've got humans going to the moon as next well, and I think even more exciting than humans going back to the moon is the opportunities that the robotic missions open up. So they're planning to do this again with the Changi 6 mission uh, to launch probably in 2023 or 2024. Mm -hmm. And, you know, China is the only country that has successfully landed on the far side of the moon. They have communication satellite in orbit around the moon to enable uh, that kind of landing. And so China basically has all the pieces now to send this mission to the far side of the moon to return lunar samples from a part of the moon that we've never mm -hmm. gotten a physical sample. And that's Chang'e 6, right? Chang'e 6 is going Chang to the far Chang side. 6, I don't yeah. think they've committed to where it's landing, yeah. but I would be stunned if they don't try to land on the far side of the moon. And, and we know from, from pictures that the far side is dramatically different than the near side. We yeah. don't really know what the small scale local uh, manifestation of that is. We know that from a big macroscopic scale, it just looks totally different. But how does that translate to your individual pebble size structure? We, we basically have no idea. Yeah. And now we know that the technology exists to answer that question yeah. in just the next few years. And it's not just this one, of course, you've got uh, TN1, which is on its way to Mars right now. And it's going to be a, a rover lander orbiter combo that's going to Mars. They've got a, um, they've got an asteroid mission in the works called Jungha, I think. And that's going to be uh, doing sample return from an asteroid as well as in situ resource utilization. So they're going to actually try to um, make rocket fuel from the surface of an asteroid. So you're really seeing them come out of the gate pretty pretty hard now with their ability to to explore the the solar system and i think that's a i think it's a really great point that you're going to see this robotic exploration at a very large scale to bring a lot of science back which will really pave the way and really help future explorers you know when you do send the humans you'll have a much better idea of what's the best places to go where are the hot spots that's incredibly exciting yeah really terrific all right um uh, Carolyn. Yes. What do you got for us? Well, I tracked the whole Chang'e thing today, too. But as you mentioned earlier, um, we're going to take a quick look at this quirky storm story from Neptune. Um, and it's not the first storm we've known about. I mean, as you recall, Voyager 2 spacecraft revealed Dark Spot and Dark Spot 2. And there were some other clouds that we saw in 1989. And everybody couldn't wait to see more pictures of it. So Hubble took a picture of it in its first peak at the planet in a couple of few years later, but by then the storm was gone. So everybody's like, what's going on here? Well, since then, several other features like this have come and gone in the Neptunian atmosphere. And Hubble has been tracking those storms. And there's actually now an official program to track them called the Outer Planets Atmospheres Legacy Program. The acronym is OPAL. Well, this storm showed up in Hubble's view in 2018. At least that's when Hubble saw it. And it, it's big. It's a really big storm. It looks like it could span the Atlantic Ocean if, you, if it could cover someplace here on Earth. And it, we know that it started out in the mid-latitudes in the northern hemisphere of Neptune, and then it began to drift southwards. We've seen this pattern in these storms before. So this is a dark vortex. It's a high-pressure system. And we know that these form, usually in the mid-latitudes, they tend to rotate clockwise through the outer atmosphere, upper atmosphere, and there it is. And after a while, they drift towards the equatorial region and they start to lose their stability due to the Coriolis effect. And so they enter sort of a kill zone. That's what the story kind of termed it today. And eventually the storm just disintegrates. So that's what I think they kind of expect with these storms to do. Well, the story about this one is that it's not doing that. Instead of staying on a southern course, it's kind of turned back northwards and people are trying to figure out why that's happened. 
And on top of all that, if you saw in the picture, there's actually another little storm sort of in the same general region. And the question now is, is this a new storm? Um, did it spin off from the, from the previous right. storm that we saw? And nobody's quite sure yet. These are questions that the planetary science that is, scientists that are looking at this are trying to answer as they study this, the, the motions of these storms through the upper atmosphere. So this idea of the storm moving up and down, I mean, this isn't something that we've seen, say, with, with Jupiter, the Great Red Spot stays in its lane. Yeah, it's pretty stable. Right? Yeah, yeah. But this spot is actually changing latitude. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of looking at sunspots in a way, but here's the storm doing this. So, so it's possible that as they head south towards dissolution, that they, in this equatorial kill zone, that they're going to fragment and dissolve. But this one, and this one could still do that, but they're just not sure. So this casts a lot of light on, you know, how do they form in the first place, which still hasn't really been answered yet. Um, um, and nor do we really have a strong feel for the structure of the storm, I mean, the, the vertical structure, right? how far down into the planet to, to the atmosphere do they go? And one of the questions that the scientists were talking about in this release was, why are they dark? To these, you know, if you recall some of the earlier Voyager pictures, there were these kind of fringy, high or high altitude um, cirrus clouds, that sort of thing. Those come and go. Um, and one idea that's been floated is that there could be these high altitude dark layers. There's some chemical thing going on, some some cosmochem or some you know atmospheric chemistry that's going on. And if that's the case, then if this is a really high altitude layer, then it could give some insight into the vertical, sort of the top to bottom structure of the storm itself. But right now they don't really know. Wow. Um, and so they're really, the long-term studies like this OPAL study are really going to give more insight into how these storms move, but I'm not sure it's going to give them insight into how, what the structure is, right. how far down they go, you know, what are they doing in the upper atmosphere? Um, kind I mean of the best way to understand why they're so ephemeral. Yeah, I mean, the winds on Neptune are just beyond comprehension. Oh, um, yeah, they're, they're I don't remember exactly how fast, 20, but they're much faster than Saturn. 100 kilometers per hour. Yeah, yeah, it's like Saturn is like 14 or something, and these are 20, yeah, 20 yeah. yeah. And so you could just imagine, like, this idea of the sort of the kill zone of the, of the storms. You could totally imagine that they get too far down, and the winds are just so strong that they just can't keep them going. And but it is it is kind of amazing. I love that Hubble every year, like when Neptune is at its closest, Hubble yeah. takes a shot and uh, it does that for all the planets. So we actually get a new shot of mm -hmm. Jupiter, a new shot of Saturn, new shot of Mars at every opposition for each one of the planets. And yeah, this is this is really cool because in, in, in atmospheric studies of these planets, time domain studies are really important. You can't just take, a, it'd be like looking at Earth and going, oh, there's these storms. And then 20 years later, you look again <laughs> and they're not, you know, it, it yeah. you know, you really need to look really much more frequently. And so, you know, Mars, you can kind of do that with Neptune, you can do that with, but you know, what you really focus on are these strange little spots. And otherwise, the rest of the, the atmosphere is a little bit more like Uranus in a way. Yeah. I mean, I guess you, it's not that big of a difference in the distance. Like when, when, when Jupiter, when Mars gets to its closest point, it is dramatically brighter than when, yeah, when bigger, Neptune yeah. gets to its closest point. You know, you've got mm -hmm. like whatever, a two astronomical unit difference from the closest point to the farthest point. But, uh, but still, it's a great opportunity to take these. You know, these what pictures. we really like is to have a, a, you know, Heidi Hamill talks about this a lot. We want to get a spacecraft out there studying it. Yes, please. 365 days a year. Yeah. Know? Yeah, you know, the I mean, the only uh, serious-ish mission right now is the Trident mission, which yeah, is going to yeah. go to Triton, but it'll be a flyby. So not even a orbiter. There's, there is a yeah. flagship proposal, but it has not gotten any serious support at this point. So Not a lot of traction. Yeah, no, so at this no. point and, – and then if you think like you're looking at a 10-plus year journey to be able to send an orbiter into that system – it's going to be a long time to get some good close Yeah, speaking pictures. of mission complexity, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We need some kind of super balloon plasma-powered yeah, think about that. machine yeah. to get you out. <laughs> to, can, you, can, can, yeah. can you float yeah. all the way to Neptune? Because that would be great. Hey, you know. Oh, see, I would ski on top of the Neptune atmosphere. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that would hey, be great. It would, still be, it would still be constant data coming back, you know? Yeah, 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 that would be perfect. All right, Carolyn, thank you so much. All right, Alex, what have you got for us? All right, yeah, well, this is a, this is a per perfect segue talking about uh, taking pictures of exo 
uh, taking pictures of planets and going to the outer solar system. Because what I was going to talk about is this new paper that's come out talking about using the sun as a telescope, basically utilizing gravitational lensing uh, to photograph exoplanets with uh, direct imaging. Now, this idea is not entirely new. This, mm-hmm. this idea dates back to um, really the, um, the late 70s, early 80s. It was first uh, proposed that we could use actually the sun as a giant transmitter to focus a, a signal and, and send, send these signals out. And then in the mid-80s, uh, it was the first time, uh, I think, that these uh, folks started saying, well, we really could use the sun as a telescope. Remember, think about a telescope is, you know, a big part of a telescope is light collecting power. So if you can use gravitational lensing to focus the light, um, then you can use the sun basically as a, as a, as a telescope. Now there are some challenges associated with this. The focal length of this lens is uh, on the order of a few, uh, several hundred uh, astronomical units, really around 550 AU. Now, uh, the viewers are probably aware that that's an enormous distance. Yeah. Uh, Neptune orbits at uh, 30 astronomical units. So to be able to place a detector at uh, 550, 600, 650 AU is an enormous challenge uh, by itself. Um, but we really could do some phenomenal science now. with this. What's that? Yeah, no, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's enormously far out, uh, far away. Um, and then you think, you know, you're trying to use this as a telescope. Uh, you can't really do much pointing, right? Because you're going to be sitting in one uh, location and, uh, you know, you're going to be moving extremely slowly if you're in orbit around the sun. Uh, otherwise, you'll just be shooting out of the um, out, out of the solar system. So this new paper, like I say, not a new idea. What's new about this paper is that they have figured out a way to uh, actually image uh, exoplanets. You know, the light collecting power is fine um, if you want to just do, you know, have it be a photometer, like uh, like Kepler, for example. If you just want to collect a lot of photons, uh, we've pretty much got that uh, uh, figured out. But this team, uh, Turishev and Toth, uh, I believe their names are, um, a few years ago, they studied for the first time the point spread function of this gravitational lens. The sun is a gravitational lens. So, you know, with any telescope, uh, the point spread function is very important to characterize. What does a point of light actually look like to the telescope? And sometimes this can have kind of a complex uh, shape. So they studied that in a previous paper. And what they've done this time is figured out how to basically reverse engineer that point spread function and recover an image. And so what, uh, what we're looking at on the screen, as Frazier uh, put it up, is uh, an image of this exoplanet, a simulated image, of course. What would the Earth look like if we could image it with this, um, with this uh, solar gravitational lens telescope at a distance of Proxima Centauri, about four <laughs> light years away? That's They've, crazy. This is a 10, yeah, 10 by, 1024 by 1024 image. And uh, basically, it takes a year to produce this image. They sample one pixel at a time. The image itself is is actually sort of projected at a size of, you know, tens of kilometers across. And so the telescope actually moves across this project, projection and samples one pixel at a wow. time. And it's about a one, in, you know, one minute integration per pixel. And they just kind of slide along and sample, sample the image like that. And so they say it would take about a year. Now, uh, astute observers might, uh, you know, start to think about additional technological challenges associated with this. The planet, of course, is not staying still. It's moving around in orbit around uh, its star. And, of course, it's rotating as well. So they say, well, these are, these are future challenges. <laughs> not our problem. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you know you, this is a single snapshot of the Earth. And uh, uh, practically speaking, you wouldn't be able to do something like this. But nevertheless, I mean, the proof of concept is you really can get this kind of resolution, which would be an absolute a game changer. I mean, to, to build a, a physical telescope, I think they estimated you'd need a, uh, a, a, you know, an aperture of 90 kilometers or something <laughs> like that. If you wanted to, if you wanted to build a telescope that has this sort of resolving power. Right. Now, that course, might be more feasible every, though, yeah. you know, to build a space-based telescope with an aperture of 90 kilometers, maybe that might be easier than getting a telescope out to 600 AU. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, with interferometers anyway, you can get the sort of the spatial resolution. Now, we typically think of interferometers as a radio thing. There are, have been optical 
uh, interferometers, but usually they have to be very close together because, uh, you know, sort of matching these waveforms in the optical regime is extremely challenging. And so you can't have, you know, unlike a, you know, ALMA or, or the very long baseline array where you have telescopes that are, you know, many, you know, in some cases, thousands of kilometers apart from one another. You can do that in the radio. To do that in the optical is, is uh, far more challenging. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, so anyway, it's a very interesting idea that, you know, being able to recover these images, if a planet is not so close close by, say, you know, more like uh, 30 parsecs on an order of 100 uh, light years away, you wouldn't be able to get such a high resolution image. Uh, but, you know, nevertheless, a pretty uh, fantastic image, even at those at those great distances. So, you know, we have to always be thinking sometimes not just a year or five years, 10 years down the line, but thinking on scales of hundreds of years, what we might be able to uh, actually accomplish. If you think about what Galileo and Newton and all of these folks were doing, you know, uh, spacecraft were hundreds of years in the future. Nevertheless, they were really laying the groundwork for the kind of amazing things that we're doing today. So there is still an important role uh, for these really right. what seems like very pie in the sky ideas. You know, eventually maybe they actually come to fruition. Now, this this concept of <clears throat> essentially using a uh, a star as a gravitational lens is used all the time just not where you, you you don't get to choose the target. That's right. Yeah. So uh, so gravitational lensing, micro lensing, has been something that we have used um, to identify, for example, rogue planets and even exomoons. My bread and butter. Uh, it, it's you know micro lensing is, is a similar concept, right? The gravitational lensing uh, that you can really see these objects when they happen to just be passing, you know, uh, in line from our point of view. That you can you can uh, probe these uh, very small uh, sm- small masses. And I was going to briefly mention uh, a, a, a paper that came out not long ago from my own advisor or my former advisor in New York, David Kipping, who has brought the same idea of the solar gravitational lens. And has said, you know, could we use the Earth yeah. as a telescope? He calls it the telescope. Now, this is a really interesting idea. It's not gravitational lensing anymore, but it is atmospheric refraction uh, lensing. Uh, actually, the, the atmosphere of the Earth will do the same sort of lensing. And the focal distance is basically the distance of the moon. So it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. You could really build something like this. I mean, we're talking before 550, 600. 50 AU for a spacecraft, that sounds like an enormous technological challenge. But so putting a detector at the distance of the moon, uh, far more feasible, obviously. Um, you know, Chang'e, for example. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're really, uh, you know, this is just a hop, skip, and jump away. Um, so, uh, again, seems like kind of, um, you know, uh, a really out-of-the-box idea. Uh, but uh, could be uh, could be quite powerful, and it it sort of makes you think that any sufficiently advanced civilization at this point has got this kind of technology going, and they are they are literally watching our planet at this kind of resolution. You know, if they've been around be. flying around for a thousand years, then they probably right. got very powerful telescopes scanning every planet they can get their hands on across the uh, across the universe. It's kind of a it's kind of an yeah. amazing idea. Um, yeah, for sure. Terrific. All right. Um, so, you, Carolyn, you brought up a uh, a suggestion for a topic that we could bring up because we are nearing uh, the holidays. You had some ideas for some space based uh, gifts for people. Yeah, it was more. I mean, if I had a, a long time, I could give you a list of books and things like that. But I was thinking, you have every year about this time, I get minutes. emails from people asking me, you know, what do I get for my baby, my daughter, my son, whatever. And the first thing I always do is say, well, have you talked to them about what they want to what they want? What are they interested in? And for books, you know, we have kids that are just getting started in astronomy. You give them things like H.A. Rays, find the constellations or something like that. That was a pretty easy and straightforward. But people want to buy equipment. They want to buy telescopes. They want to buy binoculars. And it really comes down to finding out exactly what that person wants to look at. They're a planetary observer. That's one that's going to send you in a direction of a certain kind of telescope. If you're doing deep sky or you want to do imaging, that's going to give you an, a whole other direction you want to go in. And a lot of times I don't tell people that are just buying things for beginners, start them out with a pair of binoculars because you want to learn the sky. And that's what I use. 
you know, and I've been, I've had telescopes. I've looked through things. I've worked with Hubble, you know, and I still come back to the binoculars when I want to look at the sky. Same. So I guess my, my piece of advice is keep it simple and spend time with them. Find out what they really want. Maybe it's not going to be under the tree on Christmas, but you'll be getting them something a little bit more than, than just maybe guessing and, and don't go to the department stores, you know, yeah. talk to some experts about what to buy. Yeah. Um, you know, people always ask like for a telescope guide, you know, telescope buyer's guide, an eight inch yeah. Dobsonian. That's it. That is the beginning and the end of my telescope buyer's guide. That's it. <laughs> yeah. It's, I had a six inch. I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, yeah. A six inch is fine. An eight inch, if you can afford it, don't get the 10 inch. Even if you can afford it, it's too big. Oh, yeah. 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 And Even the, eight inches is hard to move around. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The. The the Dobsonian is just you see a bright object in the sky, you take the telescope, you turn it in that direction, and you look at it, and you've got a big piece of glass or mirror that you are being able you're able to see this this object with. It lets you see the moon, the major planets beautifully. Yep. Take it, you know, put it in the back of your car, go to a dark sky site, and then you can see deep sky objects with it. Learn the learn the positions of the night sky. <clears throat> it's going to get you. It's you know it's going to be your trusted explore exploration machine for for the universe. Well, and the beauty of those kind of light buckets is is they're not thousands and thousands of no. dollars. No, you know I think mine was I don't remember it might have been five or six hundred dollars at the time. Yeah, you can get yeah. a, a six inch for about three hundred. You can get an eight inch for about yeah, maybe yeah, less. Yeah. yeah, and then an eight inch for about five hundred. And it is a mountain of telescopes. Like when you think about like those really expensive, really fancy Celestron telescopes with a big mount and all that it's the same it's an eight inch telescope it's the same size as mm-hmm. one that costs a third of the price it's just that it and it's yeah, and it's yeah. fast and simple to use and that's the and, and you don't have to worry key. about a wobbly mount either yeah yeah exactly but that was what i wanted to say it was just talk to the person talk to what they want find out what they really want and if it's books you know you have a million things out there i've got some listed on my website but but you know telescopes and equipment those are a whole other kind of ball of wax yeah really does anyone else have some have some recommendations for holiday gifts, especially for like last minute as we're nine days away? I'm a terrible gift giver. <laughs> a ping pong. A ping pong. <laughs> a space ping pong. Yeah, who, who knew you could fit so much stuff in a ping pong ball? Yeah, I, I yeah. want all that. Yeah. The well, in a shameless plug, you can go to the JPA store and we got T-shirts and books about the airship orphan program and all cool. kinds of wonderful things so when's wsh crew getting their own merch yeah that's a good question there you go hey um all right well we've reached the end of our hour thank you everybody for joining us this week i want to uh go through my co-hosts and uh give them a chance to let us know where they can find out more and what they're working on morgan you're on my screen uh where can people find out more and what are you working on yeah, you can always check out my website, uh, morganrenberg.com. And I've been doing a lot of work with SciShow recently, both writing and editing across sort of all their channels. So just go check out some cool videos. And there's a non-zero and much larger than zero chance that you'll see one of mine. Right on. Uh, Alex. Uh, yeah, what am I working on? I uh, am uh, studying in particular the dynamics of uh, planets with uh, multiple moon systems, particularly, you know, exomoons is really my bread and butter. And for a long time, we've focused mostly on planets with a single moon. And so I'm interested in seeing, you know, what we can tease out from observations when there's uh, more than one moon in the, in the system. So that's what I've been looking at recently. And if people want to follow me and what I'm doing, uh, follow me on Twitter is the best. Uh, my handle is just at Alex Ticci. Carolyn. Uh, right now I'm working on exhibit copy for this uh, Shanghai Planetarium as part of the Science and Technology Museum there. So they've sent me all of their copy. It's been translated from Mandarin to English, and I'm working on this object get into English. Oh, and if you – it's it's more fun than – it's actually very amusing. I should talk to you sometime about this. Anyway, if you want to follow me, you can look at my blog. I'm at thespacerider.com. Excellent. All right, and John, you stuck around for the show, so you get another chance to uh, to uh, to plug what you're working on. So if people want to find out more, where should they go? You should go to jpyrospace.com, and also our Twitter feeds. I try to post five or six pictures a day. Our next mission is May 2nd, 
We have 480 Pong Sats all signed up. And we're hoping, we've called that mission and made all the patches the Thrive mission. So we're hoping we're moving forward. And we're finished up this airship. This is just a model of it. About six months ago, and we can't fly it because we can't get the team together, but this is the next one wow. heading into the sky. That's incredible. As soon as we can. All right, so I've got one quick thing to mention to everybody, which is that we're not going to be doing the virtual star party at its regular time. We're going to be doing the star party on the 21st of December, and it's going to be at a funny time. It's going to be at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, and that's because it lines up perfectly with the closest time of the great conjunction with Saturn and Jupiter. So uh, we were lining up a couple of astronomers, uh, Corey Schmitz in Africa, probably a couple of people in Europe, and we're going to try to bring you a live stream of Jupiter and Saturn in the same eyepiece. So uh, we'll you know, we'll have more information on my YouTube channel as we get set up for that. Um, but that'll be the uh, on the 21st. And we'll probably like go live about an hour before and sort of see what we can do in terms of bringing uh, images together. But I, I also anticipate that this isn't going to happen. So you know how it goes with live astronomy observing. And of course, uh, you can find everything else at universetoday.com. Uh, now, if uh, this is the last episode for the holiday break, so we will all be gone. I don't even know how long we're going to be gone for. We'll be back at some point. But uh, I hope uh, all of you have an incredible holiday, safe holiday, um, and we get to see all of you again in the, in the new year. All right, putting everybody back here on the screen. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Thank you to my co-hosts and special guest. Um, thanks to all of the moderators in the chat. Thanks, of course, to Nancy Graziano for keeping us all super organized. Um, we really couldn't do this without you, all of you. I uh, really appreciate your support. And we will see all of you next time. And I don't really know when that is. There you go. Nancy is saying January 6th. So we'll see you on January 6th, 2021. That'll be a good year. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next year.